It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, one disaffected Republican is already suggesting changes the GOP needs to make after November. I'll talk with John Gabriel. Plus, we'll meet the first lesbian bishop of the United Methodist Church, and we'll talk about heist movies with a couple of experts from SMOCA. We start today's program with what has become a headline-grabbing state agency, the Arizona Corporation Commission. The commission's director of utilities, Thomas Broderick, has resigned after just about a year on the job. And joining me for a few minutes to talk about that is Ryan Randazzo of the Arizona Republican AZ Central, who wrote about that in today's edition. Ryan, welcome. So what were Broderick's duties, and why is the timing vital about this? Well, there are major rate cases before the Corporation Commission. The state's biggest utility, Arizona Public Service, has a uh, major proceeding taking place. Broderick's duty, he oversaw a staff of 60 uh, people, and they review these proposals from utilities to raise their rates or change their policies. They make recommendations on whether or not that's prudent, whether that's fair to customers. So he plays a key role in these rate decisions that the elected officials make. And that's interesting, too, because I think um, we, we hear the term bureaucrats sometimes applied to the Arizona legislature, and but we elect the commissioners to do things. How, how important are these people in the background, someone like a Thomas Broderick, to make sure the commissioners have the information they need? Almost all the heavy lifting is done by the judges and the staffers at the Corporation Commission. We do elect five people to make these decisions, but they rely very heavily on the staffers and, and the, the legal department to review these things because there are hundreds of utilities, water, gas, and electric in the state. They're all making different proposals. And so the staffers are the ones that really take a first glance at these, look at them, negotiate whether or not these things are prudent, and then bring their proposals before the five elected people to make the final call. As you've reported extensively, these are tense times on the commission. What sort of reaction did you get from folks when Roderick's announcement became public? Well, sometimes you can tell how important a story is by the number of no comments you get. And uh, based on this story, uh, the number I got reporting on this, I'd say it's pretty important. There's a lot of contention down at the commission. The five elected officials are sort of at each other's throats. They had a very high-profile debate last week on investigating dark money. And uh, not many of them wanted to go on the record and discuss the, the departure of this key staffer, although the chairman, Doug Little, and Commissioner Burns, who have been arguing with one another, both told me that they're very disappointed that Broderick's leaving. Was Broderick's background, was he kind of a natural fit for this job based on his level of experience? Well, he had uh, 32 years of experience, most of it in Arizona. He's worked for a variety of utilities. And when he was hired a year ago, we have to assume he had the blessing of all five commissioners at the time. Uh, they issued a press release. Uh, upon his hiring because they were quite proud that they had landed this official. So things have changed quite a bit in the last 12 months. So later this month, in less than two weeks, we'll have the August primary election. Obviously, early ballots have already gone out. How much could the dynamic change depending on who wins the primary and who doesn't, frankly? Well, there are five Republicans running for office, and two of them happen to be sitting commissioners today. Um, There's quite a bit of bad blood between those two, as we saw last week during a public meeting. And uh, there's a good chance that there's going to be one of them uh, or both of them is a loser after the after the primary. And considering how contentious things are right now, I'd say all bets are off after that um, because you may end up with a lame duck regulator who's uh, got his sort of last last attempt to make some decisions before they're out of office in December. Ron Randazzo of the Arizona Republic and AZ Central covers the Arizona Corporation Commission, among other things. And you can follow him on Twitter at Utility Reporter. Ryan, thanks for coming in. Thanks a lot.
This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. November's election is still nearly 90 days away, but a number of Republicans are already ready for a postmortem on the presidential race, thanks to Donald Trump's presence at the top of the ticket. Some are saying dramatic changes are needed whether or not Trump causes other GOP candidates elsewhere on the ballot to lose and leads to Democratic takeovers of the Senate and possibly the House. John Gabriel of Mesa is editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com. He recently summed up the GOP's challenges and what should come next in a column for the Arizona Republic that was also picked up by USA Today, and he's with me now. Why did Republican primary and caucus voters choose Donald Trump as the party's nominee? Were they looking for something to challenge the so-called establishment, or did they not really think about what Trump might be bringing to the table? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think people are very frustrated with Washington in general not just the Republican Party, but the feeling that the Beltway is out of touch. But it's worth noting, too, that of all Republican primary voters, only about 40 percent of them, I think a bit less, supported Donald Trump. But with a field of 17 candidates, it was easy for him to win enough delegates to uh, get the nomination. So how much of a disconnect is there between the GOP leaders in Washington, or at least the ones who spend a lot of time in Washington when they're not in their home districts, and what voters said? I mean, are these voters at the core of the Republican Party? Because it seems like those high-efficacy voters, we always hear are the ones that vote in the primaries, but it doesn't seem like those would be the people who would go for Trump. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. I, I think some of the frustration, especially among the Republican base, whether they're um, regular voters or just showed up for the first time to support the reality show candidate, is they're frustrated with a uh, politician saying one thing during campaign time and then immediately reversing themselves as soon as they're re-inaugurated. We saw that in Arizona with uh, Senator McCain, who won re-election on his most famous ad, we got to build the dang defense. Mm. And uh, he, showed that, he showed that commercial constantly on television, and he immediately rejected it once he got back into office and uh, kind of betrayed all those people who supported him. So I think people are tired of Republicans talking like they are small government, limited government conservatives. And then when they get to Washington, just giving into the same old things they've been doing, we're $19.4 trillion in debt now, and that shows no sign of slowing down. And I, I don't think that Republican voters gave Republicans in Congress enough credit for stopping Democratic agendas that were being pushed and things like that. You have uh, state houses being taken over by Republican majorities all over the country. Uh, governor's offices are being taken over by Republicans all over the country. So change is happening. We're not seeing that happening in Washington, D.C., though. The talk was always that politics was the art of compromise. And it almost seems like there's the what politics was, at least we're supposed to be in the civil society, was supposed to be is not that way anymore. It's almost like more people want a revolution of some sort. Right. I, I think that uh, the problem is twofold in Washington. You've had the great sorting. You've had Republicans run far to the right now. Democrats run further to the left now. Uh, you wouldn't have such support for someone like a Bernie Sanders in throughout the Democratic primary as you did before. And now Donald Trump, whose record is hardly conservative by anyone's measure. He hasn't been a Republican all that long. But he talks very gruff and rough and build the wall and let's bomb him and take the oil. But I don't want to get involved in foreign conflicts. So he's kind of all over the place. But he talks like an AM radio jockey. You know, he talks like a talk radio host. And you've had uh, that the other part of the Republican issue is you've had the conservative entertainment complex, which understands that outrage sells. You see it on the Internet with blogs. People are outraged, outraged all the time, no matter what the issue is. 
So if someone compromises a tiny bit, which you have to do to get anything done, that's how the Constitution is written. You need to compromise between parties. But now that's considered not only, oh, they aren't being conservative enough. It's like, no, they are a traitor to America, and the republic will fall if this you know, H.R. 27990 passes. The world's going to end. You've also had that reinforced by people making money. You have a lot of these so-called Tea Party groups, which were basically almost money laundering operations. They would uh, send out panicked uh, direct mail to constituents all over the country, to their supporters around the country, get money in, and then use that money to do more fundraising. So you just have this anger stoked, and uh, positive news, basically if it bleeds, it leads, and positive news doesn't sell. John, if Trump were to lose, uh, but the GOP retains the Senate and House, would you still believe dramatic changes would need to be made? And do you think others would, or do you think others would say, well, we won the key races and, you know, Trump wasn't really a conservative anyway? I think many of the people who are careerists in the Beltway would just want business as usual. The RNC chairman, Reince Priebus, is already talking about wanting to be uh, re-upped in his leadership role there at the RNC. So I don't think they want change, and they're going to use any success, even if they just barely hold on to the House and lose the Senate. They're going to say, oh, no, we did a great job. This was a very tough environment for us. Please keep us in our roles and don't accept, upset the apple cart. But I, I think people throughout the country, um, whether they call themselves Republicans, I actually left the party once Trump got the nomination, uh, disaffected Republicans like me. I had been one pretty much my entire voting life. I think there has been such a breach of trust, even from among the people who do support Trump. I think everybody is just tired of the RNC, the system, and what they perceive as insider dealing among the entire political class, independent of party. John Gabriel is editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com. You can follow him on Twitter at xjohn, that's E-X-J-O-N. He recently summed up the GOP's challenges and what should come next in a column for the Arizona Republic. And John, fun to catch up with you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it, Steve. And still to come on here and now, we'll talk with Tom Riley and Joe Garcia of the Morrison Institute about independent and millennial voters. And then later this hour, we'll talk heist movies with a couple of experts from Smoka. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Home Instead Senior Care, serving the Valley since 1997 as a source of non-medical in-home services for seniors. Assistance available from a few hours to continuous care. More at 480-827-4343. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Recent presidential election years have illustrated the increasing polarization among American voters. Those on both the conservative and progressive ends of the spectrum have become even more entrenched. That's occurred at the same time the number of registered independents continues to grow at the expense of the Democratic and Republican parties. How has social media affected how those people vote? And is that effect different depending on a voter's belief system, age, or passion for a particular candidate or issue? With me to talk about that and more are Morrison Institute Director Tom Riley and Director of Communications Joe Garcia. I'm curious about some of the latest research that's being done related to where independent voters and where younger voters, independent or not, are getting their news from. It's much different than those of us who are a decade or two older than that. Many individuals, uh, particularly millennials and younger individuals, are using very non-traditional sources to get information about elections, candidates, propositions, and public policy in general. Uh, most recently, uh, Pew uh, Research Center has done some really interesting, um, 
that's some really interesting findings, uh, particularly around millennials, on where they're getting their news, and found out things like Facebook um, is one source that many individuals are gathering their information. As part of that, is there a feeling that people were more or less likely, just speculatively, when there was not social media, that if they were talking to people, they were more likely to hear from people who disagreed with them, or were they still sort of on that same wavelength and were seeing the possibility of social media either expanding that or actually reinforcing that we're kind of talking to the same people who believe what we believe? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's what we're trying to delve into a little more. Uh, We we tend to have our own networks uh, surrounded by people who think like us. Uh, And many times, you know, that is reinforced by the type of news uh, sources we go to for our information. With social media, it's interesting with the expansion of Facebook and other Twitter and others is that is that expanding. Um, And so one of the areas that we're actually looking into is whether uh, independents differ significantly than Republicans and Democrats on, number one, where they go to get their information, what news sources do they use. Um, And um, two is, uh, is there a difference in their, their interpersonal networks? Uh, one thought is that our independence serving more as a bridge between Republicans and Democrats, that if we build our networks um, with individuals that think like us, our independence more apt perhaps to have Republicans and Democrats and then uh, serve somewhat as a bridge in sharing information. And Joe, coming up in a couple of weeks is Arizona's primary election. And independents have a chance to choose either Democratic or Republican ballot, whichever they, th- they think they can do. But a lot of turnout for independents hasn't been that impactful. Morrison has done some, some work into what would get independents to vote. How important do you think that is to figure out why independents do or don't vote, and then whether they actually can impact what goes on, whether social media or other places? Unfortunately, independents uh, don't vote very much in the primaries. Many are are confused and they believe they cannot vote when actually they can, and that's a messaging that needs to get across more and more. Uh, but uh, you know, by and large, uh, many Arizona voters do not vote in primary elections, which is a greater problem uh, because oftentimes the primary is deciding, due to the way districts are drawn up in legislative safe districts, who's going to who wins the primary wins pretty much in the general, uh, and Arizonans really don't understand how that works. So a lot of them sit it out. Whether you're independent or, or a Republican or Democrat, you sit out and wait until the November election when really you say, well, gee, that's not very many choices. Yes, your choices were actually in the primary. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's a, but it does come down to a, an awareness of the role of the primary in Arizona. And independents uh, largely sit it out mostly because they didn't know they can vote in the primary. And that, that was part of the confusion the last uh, presidential preference primary is they thought, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be able to vote. It just added to the confusion. Yeah. One other thing related to to young voters that I want to get into is we often talk about Latino voters in Arizona, and many of them, many of the the new uh, registered voters who are Latino are very, very young, and perhaps they haven't voted before. How big an impact do you think potentially that could have? Because we talk about it a lot. Is the feeling that younger voters just are not the high-efficacy voters yet, or is there something else that is is holding back certain Latino voters from going out? Does does there have to be perhaps a candidate like an Arpaio or a Trump where it's an anti-vote, or can you get that more positive movement of saying, you know, you can vote, you can have a real positive impact? Yeah, Latino voters are uh, unique uh, because they are largely young, Um, and we know uh, research has showed who does not vote. Young people largely don't vote. Poor people largely don't vote. People without uh, higher education 
uh, don't vote. And you were talking about Latino population. They kind of fall into all three categories. Uh, but I do think it's a little bit different now. I think there's a, the younger generation come up is a little bit different than the older ones. They question authority a lot more. Uh, an issue such as a Joe Arpaio or immigration or anything, th- these things can galvanize more people to go out. So it's just a matter of, uh, of, uh, of them voting, and there seems to be a greater uh, urgency to vote among young people than before. But, you know, we've all seen the numbers and been disappointed uh, by the expectations uh, before, so we'll just have to wait and see. Tom, do you think breaking things down these days is even more important than it was in the past? And I mean, I don't want to say categorizing people, but being aware that truly that young voters may behave different from older voters, that young voters of color may behave differently than young voters who are not of color and whatnot. Is, are the numbers even more important? Is the research even more important to figure out how, in fact, people are thinking before they go to the polls? I think it is. In fact, you know, a lot of uh, our focus over the last year and, and going forward is really looking at not only the independent, but the millennial and uh, Latino voter, uh, to see how they vote. Uh, what's interesting is uh, young people, it, it appears, are increasingly not identifying themselves with party as Republicans and Democrats, that they're rejecting the party label. We also know that uh, the independent voter, clearly in Arizona, moving nationally, is, is, is becoming a larger uh, and more significant block of voters. So uh, to overlay your uh, previous question about why independents don't vote, you know, state laws vary about the uh, ability for them to actually participate in the primary and participate in the general election. Some allow same-day registration. Others, you have to actually join another party in order to vote in the primary. Some don't allow it at all. Um, so those type of um, that phenomena about, you know, are we creating unnecessary barriers for a larger group of individuals to pl- to participate in the electoral process. Mm-hmm. So understanding and breaking that down is why we've been so interested in who the independent voter is. There's been a lot of speculation about how they vote. Maybe, maybe they're just Republicans or Democrats. But, you know, they're a pretty uh, diverse group of individuals, and they have uh, varying reasons of why they don't participate and how they vote. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix with Tom Riley and Joe Garcia of the Morrison Institute. With independence, are we seeing a sea change in 2016, potentially? Highly speculative here. But people are speculating about, well, Donald Trump being at the head of the Republican Party, that's going to force that party to make dramatic shifts. What about diversity? What about having a big tent, this sort of thing? Does, does this in any way make it more likely that independents may, in fact, assert themselves more because they feel like this is the election that can have an impact? Well, I think what we're seeing is... Uh to understand that we're not just talking about the independent party, of course, which which is not an actual party, but people who are not aligned with either, either political party. Mm-hmm. But there's also an independent thinking or an independent moving, even within the established political parties. You know, let me look how well Be- uh, uh, Bernie Sanders did uh, in the in the primary and challenging whoever he thought would just be a runaway Hillary Clinton. It was almost like preordained. And then, uh, you know, also look at Donald Trump, who beat all the establishment parties one by one by one by one and uh, was able to do that. So I think even within the political parties themselves, there is an independent movement of independent thought, of looking at politics differently, of, of having different expectations for the electorate. So that also is an interesting movement besides the independent party uh, people. And the one thing that we know about the independent party people is they don't want anything to do with any, any party, including establishing an independent party. Tom? Yeah, one of our focus on this year's State of State will actually be looking at the impact to occur right after the election. Mm-hmm. 
And we'll be looking at what the role independent voters had on the election in, in a more forward-thinking manner. Because both parties, if they haven't paid attention to the independent movement, you know, they're, they're in trouble. Um, in some of the past research and tra- traditional thinking about who independents are, um, there needs to be a rethinking of that. I mean, we're trying to challenge some of the traditional research that has just cast independents as just Republicans and Democrats in disguise. And what we're finding, you know, by some of the questions that are asked is that they are very diverse and many of them do not want to be part of a party label. The look at independents and the barriers they have in order to participate will be very important because what we're finding when many individuals are coming out who, who identify as independents is is uh, challenging, you know, their ability not to participate in the electoral process or having barriers to do so. Tom Riley and Joe Garcia of the Morrison Institute at ASU. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks. And still to come on here and now, we'll meet United Methodist lesbian bishop Karen Olivito, and we'll hear about heist movies from a couple of experts from Smoka. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Framed U Optical, now offering eye exams at their 7th Street and Missouri location. You can learn about their doctor of optometry and contact information to book your appointment at framedewe.com. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Last month, Scottsdale hosted the Western Jurisdictional Conference of the United Methodist Church. And on July 15th, Reverend Dr. Karen Olivito was elected by delegates to be the first openly lesbian United Methodist bishop. The church, though, still opposes same-sex marriage, just one of the challenges Olivito faces as she expands her role as a leader. And Bishop Olivito joins me from San Francisco. Bishop, how significant, not just as a church leader, but as a member of the United Methodist faith, is your election? And how did it feel that day in July? It was a powerful moment when I was elected uh, to feel the entire body who was engaged in this time of discernment wrap their arms around me and say, we feel that God is calling you. It, I felt a mantle placed on, upon me. I felt a, the weight of a community that has been longing to have a voice at the table um, put their weight behind me, and uh, it was very humbling. I, I just remember crying a lot and being surrounded by so much love. How generally accepting or not accepting is the United Methodist faith, either by itself or in context of other uh, faiths as well? Well, the United Methodist Church has on record saying that um, all people are of sacred worth. However, we go on to say that um, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, which then makes some people second-class citizens in the body of Christ. Um, The thing is, we're not of one mind around human sexuality, on matters of homosexuality. We're quite divided, almost, you know, in the United States, I'd say, pretty evenly divided. In some parts of the United States, there are gay and lesbian pastors serving openly. In others places, people are losing their positions. So it's, it's, we've long held a don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm. So people are seen for their gifts and graces and said, yeah, we think you are called to ministry in the United Methodist Church as long as you don't tell all of who God created you to be. Mm. So it it creates uh, real problems in the church, I think, because the church ought to be the place where we come and stand with 
total honesty and authenticity before each other and before God. Karen, as, as a leader, you're in, you're in a different position. You've chosen to be. You've chosen to be obviously actively involved and be someone who tries to have the faith reconcile with, with what everyday life is for people. But how do you reconcile personally when you are in a faith that has not been fully accepting of, of who you are? For you as a person and then also as a member of the clergy, how do you balance that? I am a United Methodist through and through. It's in my bones. It's a part of my DNA. And I don't know any institution, any system that I'm going to agree 100% with. I don't know any of us who agree 100% with any belief system, any system of, of faith. But for me, to not be a United Methodist would be taking away a core identity of who I am. So I struggle in the tension of the differences we have with one another, but I think that in that we are called to live into these tensions, that with the differences of belief that we have, God brings us to a, a place none of us intended to go. So, you know, I'm here to stay with my United Methodist, Methodist brothers and sisters to continue to struggle, to discern where God is leading us in this day and age, and I expect to be brought to a place I hadn't intended to go. So how important is it that this sort of hands-off or or don't ask, don't tell sort of policy that you mentioned, how important is it that something like that is is swept away towards something uh, more more clear, more obvious? Don't ask, don't tell, I think, is an abomination to the body of Christ. You can't tell one group of people, we love you, we accept you, just don't tell us all of who you are and how you love. God calls us to be fully who God created us to be. So I think it's really important. It helps the church be more honest about who's in the pews, about the longings that people bring, their hurts, their wounds, and it helps people be surrounded by the Holy Spirit that brings us to a place of greater wholeness. What led to to this? How tough were the efforts that ultimately led to your election? Because there are obviously people who lay the groundwork for this sort of thing. Maybe you were one of the people who helped do that. Um, How much of a space was there for this finally to occur? Well, I think coming into 2016, our general conference, which is our every four years, the global United Methodist gathers to, to help us discern how we are going to order our life together as we live into the next four years. And at that... Uh, there was a rallying cry. It's time for the church to embrace LGBTQI people openly, honestly, fully. Uh, So there was a movement within the church to have an openly gay or lesbian candidate rise to the ranks of the bishops. Especially in the West, where we've served more openly and where LGBTQI people are seen as, as... a welcomed and, in fact, necessary part of the body of Christ because the body of Christ is so different. Uh, There were two of us who were openly uh, a gay man and myself as a lesbian. We We both felt called to this moment in the life of the church. And what happened in Scottsdale, Steve, was incredibly powerful because a group of people came together to discern What kind of leadership is needed for this moment in the United Methodist Church, both within the West and around the globe? And after much prayer, discussion, discernment, my name rose to the top. And it was a profound experience of church being the best it can be. 
So what many people would, would label as progress and an increase in tolerance, it seems as though when the average person thinks about reconciling certain belief systems with uh, advancement of same-sex marriage becoming more accepted, for example, legally and in other ways, is that harder to penetrate in a church environment because of certain expectations of people who have been in a church environment before, or are the same challenges existing in that as it would in general culture? That's a fascinating question. I, You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg made a, a, a fascinating insight. She said the reason why LGBTQI rights have advanced so much is that when people came out, people discovered their brother, their sister, their their sons, their daughters, their nieces, their nephews, and it caused cognitive dissonance. And so they had to reconcile what they thought they believed with the people that they love. And that one reason why race and racism hasn't been eradicated as quickly in American culture has to do with the fact that we still live in highly segregated places. So as long as the church has a segregated culture where people are put to the margins, and I'm specifically talking about LGBTQI people, if they're if they're called incompatible with Christian teaching, the church is going to have a harder time moving forward on this issue. It's only when people who are labeled issues are seen for who they are rather than the wedge issue they've been used as that hearts and minds change. Is there a fear that more people who don't believe that are going to dig in and make it even more difficult and and perhaps be even angrier about it? Or is there a feeling that that there's an evolution that will happen there as well? I think there's always, you know, any advances forward creates reaction. That's the cycle we live with as social beings. I want to and what I've seen so far is love ultimately wins. And that's the side that I want to stand on. What are some of your greater goals as it relates to United Methodist faith or even in, in a greater sense of, of Christianity or bringing more people in to be comfortable with all this? My goal is that we live into beloved community, that this world, which is so fractured by hate, so fractured by poverty, so fractured by intolerance, that we live boldly as the body of Christ, that we love so fully, so completely, that the neighborhoods in which United Methodist churches stand in are utterly transformed by the love that spills out of these communities. That's my goal. Karen Olivito is Bishop of the Mountain Sky area. Last month in Scottsdale, she was elected as the first openly lesbian United Methodist Bishop by delegates at the Western Jurisdictional Conference. And Bishop, thanks very much for the time. Nice to talk with you. Thank you, Steve. This was great. And stay with us still to come on here. And now we'll talk with a couple of experts from SMOCA about heist movies like The Thomas Crown Affair. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust, serving Maricopa County nonprofit leaders through transformational Piper Fellowships. More at pipertrust.org slash piperfellows. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. We've all seen movies that include what would have been called capers that involve a group getting together to steal a valuable jewel or painting or some other work of art. The Thomas Crown Affair, the 1990s version with Pierce Brosnan, features the title character stealing a famous painting and the efforts to stop or catch him. There are a lot of fast-paced scenes and security getting confused and Pierce Brosnan and others sneaking around them. 
Thursday night at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, or SMOCA, will feature the version that stars Brosnan. Its special twist is the real-time commentary offered by museum professionals on the film's authenticity. And with me to talk about the event is SMOCA registrar Pat Evans and also SMOCA's curator of programming, Peter Bug. Pat, let me start with you on this. How important is accuracy to a film like this? You're a museum professional. The average person is just watching it to be entertained. I don't know if Hollywood is ever very accurate. I think they're entertaining, and I think that they're fun, and I enjoy a good caper movie like everyone else, and I probably sit back and enjoy, like, pointing out things to myself or to my friends that are really unrealistic or really wouldn't happen or would be, you know, sort of doing things the wrong way or in an inappropriate way. So I look at them as great fun, but I certainly wouldn't look at any of them as documentaries, and we don't want them to be too realistic. We don't want to give people ideas on how they might go about and do these heists themselves. (laughs) How many times have you seen the movie? Have you been prepping to make sure that you know which scenes you want to talk about, that sort of thing? I have seen, I saw the movie whenever it first came out with a group of colleagues from a museum. I believe we sat in the first and second row of the theater and probably nearly got ourselves kicked out because we were laughing and screening and pointing out things and hooting and hollering, so having a wonderful time. I've probably seen it maybe four or five times since then, and to prepare for this about two more times. In watching the movie, what are the key scenes for people who haven't seen it? When you think of the museum scenes that people should be especially excited about, what stands out? In the very beginning, our protagonist, um, Pierce Brosnan, walks into the museum, sits down, and takes out of his briefcase a croissant and begins to eat it in the Impressionist Gallery. And as most people know, if you've been to museums, we really don't allow food and drink. And I can't think of a food that would be more prohibitive, prohibited than a croissant because it's so crumbly and it gets everywhere and they're buttery, so they leave your fingers all icky. Um, so that would really that was something that really stood out to me and is something that is just a really very much against museum policy. So there are the two main two main museum scenes, one at the very beginning, one at the very end. And like Pat said, the, the one at the, begin, um, the beginning during the art heist, they, they raise the temperature in order for the thermal imaging to not work. And the thing is, if first of all, you know, the, the museum's heat wouldn't raise that quickly. And then second of all, if it really did get up to 90 degrees, they would uh, usher out all of the guests, and they would also start really preserving the artworks because they're works that could be damaged that are that if, if the temperature got that high. And none of that is happening. And it's the sort of thing that you might not be able to know right away if you were not a museum professional. Now, Peter, what made you want to hold this event at Smoka? Because it, it seems like one of those that could be a lot of fun. If people attend, should they be prepared to not actually hear all the dialogue because they're going to want to hear you or, or Pat or someone else comment on what's going on? Yeah, they, um, we're, we're going to do our best to not cut out too much of the important dialogue, but it's a caper movie, so um, there, there's a lot of dialogue that isn't super important anyways. But the reason that we wanted to do it is we were sitting in a staff meeting one time and we somehow the movie came up, and it was one of those things where it's sort of a, a few of us all admitted it was a guilty pleasure of ours, and and you know we were sort of expecting each other to you know have really wonderful highbrow taste, and so uh, we wanted to just really enjoy the, the fun parts of the movie, but at the same time point out the ridiculous parts of the movie and and let people share that with us. I already asked Pat this, but what do you think about ridiculous aspects of a film like this? Is it is it okay for non-museum professionals to just go in and get a kick out of it? Absolutely. Um, Pat said that 
a lot of times Hollywood's goal is to not portray things accurately, but it, it, their, their goal is to entertain. But I think that, I mean, I've, I've spoken with um, an architect who was complaining that in, in movies that if you want a character, uh, a male character specifically, who is simultaneously uh, creative but also sort of a, a businessy type person and not a complete artist, they will be an architect. But they're always, you know, very, very well-paid architects. And they say that doing always very interesting process. And this this architect was telling me that, that that's very, very few architects, um, and he's interested in that stereotype in movies. Why do you think it's so dramatic, maybe even romantic to some people, to have a film that involves someone putting on that all-black outfit, and, and whether it's in a Mission Impossible film or whether it's the Thomas Crown Affair, where there's some sort of—is there something special or almost— untouchable about a museum that makes it sort of ripe for this kind of film that that really gets people excited i would say, i mean it's not just a museum movie but also uh specifically a heist movie mm. that when somebody's doing this it's it's partly the uh, physical feat of it but also it's just generally the idea of somebody being more clever not just in the museum but more clever than a a team of professionals and somebody that can outwit that team and that's people like seeing other people be clever does it have to be someone like Pierce Brosnan, who, who looks like to a lot of people that he was born in a tuxedo? <laughs> um, I would say that to me, he, he, I would agree he does look like he was born in a tuxedo. Um, and I think that, that that in some ways might actually put some people off that they... Pierce Brosnan is not an underdog in this movie. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, we, we like to root for the underdog. But um, it's also really nice to see somebody who, who looks great while they're doing it. And Pat, you had one other inaccuracy you wanted to point out uh, from the Thomas Crown Affair? Um, at the beginning of the heist, the, there is a crate that's delivered to the museum, and the paperwork on the crate doesn't match the paperwork on the clipboard that the security guard has, and he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and is like, oh, well, we'll figure that out later. <laughs> the museums have entire teams of people, known as registrars, who do nothing but track shipments and know what's coming when and what's to be expected, and we would never, never, never accept a crate when we didn't know exactly what was in it or who it was coming from, or the specifics of it. So that is a clear, clear mistake. Coming up Thursday night at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, or SMOCA, they're going to feature the Thomas Crown Affair, the version that stars Pierce Brosnan, and the special twist is the real-time commentary offered by museum professionals on the film's authenticity. And I've been talking with Pat Evans and Peter Bug of SMOCA. Thanks very much, Pat. Thank you.